The difference between me and you, he says, is that you always want to make people feel bad about something. You're a big supporter of Eat Your Peas Broadcasting, and I don't go for that. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Ray Suarez, a veteran journalist and broadcaster likely well-known by this audience. He's the host of a new podcast from the World Affairs Council called On Shifting Ground. He had me on his show to discuss podcasting about international affairs. And our conversation evolved into a behind-the-scenes look at how I approach each episode of Global Dispatches and my approach to journalism more broadly. Needless to say, if you're a regular listener to the show, I think you'll find my conversation with Ray Suarez valuable. And if you're new to the show, it will give you some insights into how Global Dispatches differs from most other internationally focused media outlets. I admit it's somewhat odd for me to be the one answering questions instead of asking questions, but I think this conversation will give you some insights into how and why I run Global Dispatches the way that I do. So I'm happy to share it with you now and encourage you all to subscribe to On Shifting Ground wherever you find your podcasts. Here's the episode. This is On Shifting Ground. I'm Ray Suarez. When a well-known podcast producer wrote a book about the form and gave useful pointers about how to start your own podcast, I decided I'd head out for the book event. The bookstore was jammed, with a crowd trailing out the door. As an old-fashioned through-the-air radio guy for much of my working life, I figured I was going to have to pay attention, even if I did joke with friends that eventually every American would have a podcast with an audience of two, the host and his or her mother. According to the Pew Research Center, 50% of Americans have listened to a podcast in the past year, and radio listenership was still relatively high in 2020, with 80% of Americans ages 12 or older having listened to terrestrial radio in a given week. But given technological advances in computing and communications, 
it appears likely listeners will drift away from terrestrial radio. As for me, I've spent over 40 years in radio and just recently started podcasting. The reason why? Well, it's similar to the reason why anyone podcasts, I guess. You've got to throw in your line where there's fish. And the barriers to entry are low enough that the evolving craft encourages inventiveness and surprise. What do these seismic changes and potential threats mean for the future of journalism? Here to talk about the future of reporting in the digital age is Mark Goldberg, host of Global Dispatches. Mark is also the editor of the United Nations and Global Affairs blog, UN Dispatch, and he's been published in the New York Times, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, and many others. Mark, welcome to On Shifting Ground. Thank you so much, Ray. Glad to be here. Now, you have an extensive career reporting international stories. Did you assign yourself to this beat? More or less, to be honest. I mean, this is the unique nature of podcasting. It just can be as simple as one guy with a mic. And I structure my show around interviewing people around the world. And to be honest, with technology today, and even the technology that existed 10 years ago when I started the podcast, it is and was easy to reach people around the world to get their perspective on what's happening around them. And so it really was just an easy way to set out doing international journalism. You could sit at home wherever you are in the world, contact someone elsewhere in the world, and draw out their expertise about international affairs. So you create this thing, send it out into the ether. Do more people have the wherewithal to be able to listen everywhere in the world? Is it a simpler proposition than trying to have a radio show that's on at a particular time and has to be tuned in in a particular place? Well, unlike you, Ray, I have not had a radio show, so the uh, comparison might be difficult for me to assess, but I can tell you based on data I get from Global Dispatches that my podcast has been listened to in every single country in the world except North Korea. That suggests that there is indeed a degree of ease of access that exists out there if people are willing to try. And now what distinguishes podcasting from radio, however, is also what I think makes it powerful. To listen to a podcast episode is actually kind of a difficult and somewhat onerous thing. You have to first like find the episode that you're interested in listening to. Then you have to navigate the still kind of clunky podcast listening apps that exist like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Then you have to devote like, you know, in my case of, of my show, a half hour of your day to listening to it. And that all is like a huge investment on the part of the listener. And I think because the listener has made that deep investment of his or her time into consuming your content, that makes for a depth of connection that is just far more profound than I would imagine radio is, where you kind of turn it on driving when you're listening to driving your car and then turn it off when you, you get home. So you have repeat customers. You do. Like, once you've captured that listener, assuming that your content is great and excellent and awesome, which I know this podcast is and I aspire my podcast to be, once you've got that listener, it is easy to retain him or her. Again, because of the way podcast apps are structured with push notifications and the like, getting that listener in the first place is difficult 
but not impossible. And if you do it enough, you can make a, a career and have some impact out of it. I'm glad you spoke up for familiarity and trust. Do you find, have you found, that once someone who is generally interested in what's going on in the world perhaps tunes in specifically to hear a program on their particular area of interest, let's say development or food or Africa, that that trust and familiarity will give them the willingness to give you a shot when you want to take them places that maybe they're less familiar with? I think that's true. Part of the nature of what I do is cover generally undercovered global stories. So when you have someone, say, from a part of the world that doesn't routinely get coverage in mainstream media, or perhaps someone who works in a field or a job that is somehow connected to an issue or a topic that routinely doesn't get covered by the mainstream media, but is something that I sort of often cover, they kind of take notice and, and they say, wow, we're actually getting some attention from the media. This is wild. Like, what is this media organization that's paying attention to the unfolding crisis in Cameroon, say? And that will, I think, buy you some trust and you're able to take that audience to other places around the world that are similarly, in my view, undercovered on and underreported by most more conventional news outlets. I think there may be a shallower on-ramp. If you pitched a commercial broadcaster and said, let, let me do you a weekly program on this. I'm already doing a successful podcast. They may find it tough to put you in the schedule, but a podcast gives everybody who's interested in Cameroon the opportunity to find you. The impetus, the momentum is in the other direction. Instead of you looking for them, they come looking for you because the world of people, the universe, the set of people who might be interested in a particular topic is finite. And in some cases in this particular area, sometimes small. But if you can capture everybody who wants to know about the latest from Hong Kong, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of podcasts out there that are just very niche and are able to exploit their expertise in that niche to run successful podcasts. In the case of Global Dispatches, you know, we have something of, of a global remit and we seek to cover humanitarian and international stories that many other podcasts or, or media outlets don't. I'd say a core of our audience are people who are professionally engaged in foreign policy and international affairs one way or another, people who work at the State Department or in think tanks or at the United Nations. But that's not the entirety of the audience. It also includes people who are just more generally interested in international news. They have that kind of international news junkie bug that I know you and I sort of probably caught early in our lives. And they're sort of like us in, in that way. One thing that's been shifting underneath our feet is the amount of trust the audience has in big institutions, in government, in media, in legal systems, in medicine. I mean, we saw during the pandemic how some conspiracy theories about vaccines and about national strategies for dealing with the pandemic took off like wildfire 
because they're operating in a vacuum of trust where people no longer believe the places that actually exist to help them make sense of these things. They'll believe anything or anybody. Is it hard for you to work in that atmosphere of eroding trust in large institutions? No, it really isn't. Trust, of course, is not immediately conferred upon me by the audience. Rather, it's something that's built over time. And more than anything else, I think the audience that congregates around Global Dispatches trusts me to find the right people to interview on any given topic. Generally, what I do with my show is not spout my own opinion or views about a particular topic. I don't like hide my opinions or views, but it's not like the Mark Leon Goldberg show. It's global dispatches in which I'm interviewing an individual somewhere around the world with expertise on the specific topic that we're discussing that day. And it's the audience trust in me that I will find the right person whose perspectives are useful and valuable and insightful. That's, I think, the dynamic that drives what it is that I do. As the world rises and falls on waves of crisis, do you find audiences rise and fall as well? That when they're less worried, they may be less likely to come. So I have data to back up my answer. Immediately in the early days of COVID, I did see indeed a surge in listenership to the podcast. And I think that's for a few reasons. Number one, global health is a topic that is routinely covered by the podcast. And I had done a number of episodes in the years prior to the outbreak of COVID-19 on issues related to pandemic preparedness. Indeed, I published an episode like a month before COVID titled, Are We Prepared for the Next Big Pandemic? And then I routinely covered the intricacies of what's happening at the World Health Organization. I saw early on that they were actioning certain processes that were highly unusual in regard to this virus coming out of China. And so I, like in mid-January, did an episode on COVID, January 2020. So I did see a surge around COVID. I've also been doing this long enough to note that changes in the technology of listening to a podcast also has impacted trends in listenership. So when Apple made the podcast native to one of their like Apple 7 or 8 or iPhone 7 or 8, that saw a big surge. So you see kind of structural changes as well as shifts in news crises. And also I'd say more recently, the outbreak of war in Ukraine or Russia's invasion of Ukraine was another moment in which you saw a surge, I'd say, in traffic to my own podcast, just based on the kind of routine nature of, of the kinds of things that we cover. You have a long track record as a writer, what made you do, well, I guess brand extension? What convinced you that you had to open up another media front beyond just writing for interested audiences in magazines, in journals? So I came up in the early days of blogging, 
if you remember way back when in the early 2000s, blogs were a new and, and dangerous and a medium that was threatening traditional journalism. Anyway, that was like the milieu in which I kind of cut my teeth in my early years as a journalist. And about 10 years ago, I just sort of realized that the content that I was churning out, producing on a daily basis was just very ephemeral. It had like a really short shelf life. I had recently had my first child and I was thinking to myself, man, the stuff that I'm writing about so-and-so international controversy in a quick hit blog post is just not going to have any sort of staying power. It's not going to impact or be anything relevant to my daughter like 10 years from now when she might want to read news. And so I thought at the time, this was like in 2012, I had been listening to podcasts for a while. I realized that there was no real podcast about the kind of stuff that interests me, international affairs, news from the world beyond which the mainstream media routinely covered. And I thought, let's bootstrap a podcast about it and create content that's a little more lasting, that's a little more evergreen, and hopefully a bit more impactful as well. Have you learned anything about the cell? I've been in the news business since the late 70s. And I've found that foreign affairs in all kinds of newsrooms has often been a very tough sell where editors and producers and executive producers have wheeled around on their heels and said to me, okay, tell me why anybody in our audience is interested in this. They give you a burden of proof that people covering the stock market might not have, that people covering the price of gas might not have, that people covering natural disasters in the Midwest might not have. And you have to then make the sell. The world has only become more complicated, more dangerous, arguably, harder to understand in that time. And I don't know, some days, whether that makes the sell harder or easier. If the world feels more threatening, if the world feels more complex, does that make what you're doing more vital or an even harder sell? So I come at that question from a different perspective than I would say most conventional professional journalists do. And I'll share an anecdote with you. So a few years ago, three professors of journalism set out to study deficiencies in what they considered to be the mainstream media's coverage of international crises. And in the process of their research, these are all academics out of the UK, they came across a small number of people, myself included, who are charting a very different course. And they noted that what we do shares many similarities to conventional journalism in terms of objectivity and independence. However, it also shares and draws on principles from humanitarianism, chief among them the idea of the moral equivalence of all lives, regardless of geography or cultural proximity. And so that leads a few of us to consider it newsworthy that a famine is unfolding in Somalia, despite the fact that there are no like hard U.S. interests at stake or despite the fact that there's no news hook. And this 
group of academics identified us, and, and there's just a few of us that are able to do this and do this consistently as humanitarian journalists. And I kind of like that term because it does, I think, accurately describe how I approach what I consider to be newsworthy. It's not just things that I think will excite audiences in the West. What I define as newsworthy are things that affect a lot of lives, no matter where they are. It just so happens that the news budgets of the world have thrown up a perfect example for us to discuss as a case study. Right now, rival generals in Sudan are fighting over control of Khartoum. Large numbers of civilians have died. This is a place that I can make the argument is vital to the peace of Africa. I always ask listeners to this program to pull out a map and look at the places we're talking about. Sudan borders many of the crisis points in the continent of Africa. It is a place where the world has been interested in dislodging serial, really bad governments that have really served their people badly and created instability in that part of the world. But I can think back to my days at various networks and news outlets where a boss would say, well, why should we write about two fighting generals in the Sudan? How do you answer that? So two ways to answer that. Number one, Sudan is important. It's a country of 45 million people. As we speak, it is on the brink of a full-scale civil war. The rival generals you just described are enmeshed in a variety of regional entanglements that threaten to draw in, propel, and drive this conflict even further. Meanwhile, this conflict is unfolding in a region that is suffering already several catastrophic humanitarian crises, including an epic drought in Somalia and still reeling from a civil war in Ethiopia right across the border from the region that borders Sudan. It is not at all clear that the United Nations and the international humanitarian community is able to confront a, another massive humanitarian crisis in this region. And so you will expect, and I would imagine that if this crisis continues to devolve and escalate, that we will see profound shifts of people. People will become displaced internally and across borders. And just for reference, the population of Sudan today is about twice that of pre-war Syria. So you can imagine just a, a variety of bad things befalling both the region and the world. So that's one way to answer that question. Another is to use the platforms that we have as journalists to shine a light on this. So back in February, I did an episode of the podcast about the impending failure of Sudan's democratic transition and why it was probably likely that these two rival generals would soon be fighting each other. Kind of an early warning, I hoped, for the kind of policy audience that sometimes listens to the podcast. And then just yesterday, before I've actually published this episode, I interviewed that same person again. She was holed up with her family in Khartoum with her 
kind of water supplies and her food supplies running low. And I revisited those same kind of questions. Why is it that Sudan's democratic transition has failed? And what can we expect going forward in terms of how this conflict may escalate or not? And so I try to use whatever platform I have again to be something of like an early warning system. And once alarm bells go off, talk to the people who got it right and explain what can be done to get out of this morass. I'm sold. Of course, it's never going to be the top rated kind of programming in the world. But do you have a responsibility along with being informative, along with being correct and verifiable, to be entertaining? I mean, it is a form of entertainment, right? And to be honest, not all guests are as entertaining as possible. What I try to do with each episode, and each episode, as I said, is structured around like a 20, 30 minute interview. Before the episode starts, I try to chart a narrative in my head of what is the story that I'm trying to draw out of the person I'm interviewing? What sort of adventure will this person take me on? And how can I frame the questions that I ask this person in such a way that is both informative, but also compelling and brings the audience along for a ride? Once a boss confronted me and said, the difference between me and you, he says, is that you always want to make people feel bad about something. You're a big supporter of Eat Your Peas Broadcasting. And I don't go for that. And I tried to explain to him just how wrong he was, that we should be going for an audience that gets a kick out of being smart and actually thinks it's more fun to be smart than to be dumb. <laughs> and that we'd, we'd actually do well in the ratings if we had that tattooed on our foreheads. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's true. But there's also, I think, a way to approach international crises in particular that don't dwell exclusively on the facts of the crisis themselves, but rather when appropriate offers solutions to the crisis. This is sometimes called solutions journalism. And it, I try to integrate it into what I do as often as possible. Essentially, what I try to do and what solutions journalism aspires to do is to be like a how done it. How is it that a crisis like this has been resolved in the past? Or what are we seeing on the ground right now that suggests a way forward beyond the continuing deterioration of the situation? And that leads to secondary follow-up questions about like, what can the international community, what can listeners do to support a solution to this crisis? It doesn't always neatly come out that way, but it is something that I aspire to do. And I think that leaves audiences empowered, but also it, I think, suggests that what I try to do is not simply just dwell on the problem, but offer insights into what might be a solution and hopefully that is a way to have broader impact in what it is that i cover i think that manifesto will have people who are listening to this podcast or radio program thinking yeah i'll listen to that they should <laughs> well yeah 
<laughs> That's Mark Goldberg. He's the host of Global Dispatches. He's the editor of the UN and global affairs blog, UN Dispatch. And he joined me on Shifting Ground. Great to have you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to On Shifting Ground, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from listeners like you. Today's episode was produced by Elise Manukian, Sienna Barnes, and Andrew Stelzer. It was mixed and mastered by Matteo Schimpf. KQED's Jim Bennett is our technical supervisor. Jared Sport is our executive producer. Philip Yun is CEO of World Affairs. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening.